From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Good evening and welcome to my little audio imaginarium. We peddle conspiracies and the paranormal and UFOs on this broadcast. So if you think the Warren Report is a wonderful piece of fiction, if you believe that scratching noises under your bed or behind the wall is not just a mouse, and the alien issue is less about illegals and more about extraterrestrials, then you've come to the right place. My name is Richard Serrett, and this is The Conspiracy Show. I mentioned conspiracies, and I'm reminded of Jim Mars and his book, Rule by Secrecy, uh, in which he wrote, conspiracies are, conspiracies are not just theories. Oftentimes, they are crimes. That bears repeating. Uh, but too often, it seems, the, the mainstream media look at conspiracy as some sort of sociological phenomena, something to be uh, studied, put under a microscope. Scores of books and articles and even scholarly papers have been written trying to understand what makes people who believe in conspiracies tick. Again, the subtext being that everyone who doesn't believe in the official version of any given news event is suffering from some kind of pathology. Books and articles, scores of books and articles on why conspiracies are dangerous, even toxic. There was a, a member of President Barack Obama's administration who was charged with the task of using social media to persuade people to stop believing in conspiracies. In just a few moments, a political scientist and an associate professor with what I think is a refreshingly honest, objective, and fair treatment of conspiracy, Joseph Yusinski is standing by to discuss why conspiracies are, are why conspiracies are so popular in North American culture, how they're treated in the mainstream media, the important role conspiracy theory plays in society. He'll also discuss the history of conspiracy theories, particularly in the United States, and uh, we'll hear about the results of an experiment he conducted with his students involving conspiracy theories. Uh, but once again tonight, as I've done for the last two weeks. I wanted to introduce you to another one of the featured speakers at my upcoming Follow the Truth, the Conspiracy Show Summit, which is coming to Oshawa November the 16th. If you've uh, ever felt there was something odd about the world we live in, Jim Elvidge provides a new provocative view of that true nature of reality and provides evidence suggesting we're living in a digital simulation. In other words, our reality is programmed along the lines of the movie The Matrix. Jim holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Cornell University. He's applied his training in the high-tech world as a leader in technology and enterprise management, including many years in executive roles for various companies and entrepreneurial ventures, and he is the author of The Universe Solved. Jim, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be on the show again. And uh, looking very much uh, forward to, uh, to to speaking with you once again, November the 16th at the Region Theater in Oshawa, where, where you'll be uh, presenting. Just uh, w obviously without uh, telling uh, telling us everything that's in your presentation, give people uh, who maybe uh, haven't heard you before, give us an overview of what you'll be talking about. Sure. Um, and, you know, the uh, name of the conference, Follow the Truth, is just, couldn't be more perfect for the kind of message and the kind of research that I'm doing. Um, one of the things that has happened over the years is whenever there's a radical idea in science or in sociology or many, many different fields, 
it takes a long time for that idea to take hold. You could look at something like, uh, you know, cave art was originally thought to be very recent, and then he found out that it was 30,000 years old. Um, it kind of turned uh, anthropology on its on its head. Uh, Ohm's law, a very simple law but, uh, re- relating voltage, current, and resistance, was considered heretical when it came out. And it took about 30 years for these kinds of um, ideas to gain acceptance. There's an initial negative reaction to those ideas. Another one was cold fusion. Cold fusion now is called uh, low-energy nuclear reactions. It's another example of something that took about 30 years for it to kind of hit the mainstream. Well, I say all of that because um, following the truth is really about looking at the evidence in scientific experiments, well-done scientific experiments, and making determinations of what that tells us about reality. And unfortunately, Many scientists are refusing to acknowledge that, you know, there's some really interesting and unusual and uh, provocative results from some of these experiments that tell us our reality is digital and also tell us that our reality is based on consciousness and not based on uh, material, uh, based on matter and energy as has normally been thought. So this idea is not my idea. This is, I'm one of the people who have kind of sifted through a lot of the experiments and a lot of the information and, you know, come to my own conclusions about it. And so my presentation is basically about explaining why this view of reality, this view of the world that we live in, is really the only one that can answer all the questions that we have, solve all the anomalies that we have from the observer effect, the finely tuned universe, paranormal things, mysteries of life, life after death, nature versus nurture, UFOs, all those things fall neatly into place when you, you know, look at the evidence and take it to its conclusion. So my presentation is about just that. It's just about showing, you know, where these ideas come from, why they solve all of these anomalies, these scientific and and, uh, paranormal anomalies, and how it it all comes about. You know, what, what really is it? Now, they're we're getting into a more speculative area, you know, what our world is like, how it came about, um, and there are some very good theories on this, but, you know, admittedly, that's a bit speculative, but that's an interesting uh, area to, to discuss as well. Jim, just just take a couple of moments. Uh, for those, uh, let's call them the uninitiated, or again, those who haven't heard you, you speak on this program or other programs or, or haven't read The Universe Solved, uh, what do you mean... Uh, by we are li- we may be living in a digital simulation. In other words, our reality may be a digital simulation. Right, and and it's a real it's a great question, and it's really important to um, to note that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's some alien hacker somewhere that we're under the control of. The movie The Matrix was, I think, you know, a very interesting and provocative um, idea about this, but. The, the whole premise of it, you know, robots kind of running the, the simulation and, and humans being batteries, and that, that was a little far-fetched. I think it's much more likely that we live in a system which is digital, um, and what that, what that means is that when you dive as far deep as you can into matter, ultimately what you're going to find out is that there's no real stuff there, and, and this has been happening over the past century or century, century or two, that we're realizing that as we break apart atoms, as we break apart subatomic particles and things like that, we, you know, we find that 
um, there, there's less and less stuff, more and more space, and ultimately it's looking like really um, everything is just information. If everything's information, all of the forces that we feel, all the experiences that we have are just based on this information, based on data. So the system that we live in probably has created all of this. And uh, my, my friend Tom Campbell has also written a great book called uh, My, uh, My Big Toe, and he explains how this may have all come about. And it's, it's I think, a, a very good uh, explanation for how it came about and, and why we live in, in the, you know, the world that we live in. Uh, you mentioned so, Moore's Law a little a while ago, Jim Moore's Law, and, and uh, which sort of tracks the technological uh, advances and, and how it's, you know, just the multiplier effect. And, and you and I, you and I have discussed this before on the program. Uh, and and uh, for a, a perfect example of, of Moore's Law to me, and, and speaks to this idea of a digitally a programmed reality or a digital simulation, is how how it's getting harder and harder. Uh, to differentiate between, uh, let's say, a, a video game and, and uh, John Madden's NFL every year comes out with a new edition. And uh, I, I saw my uh, my nephews playing it, uh, I think it was a 2012 or 2013 edition a couple of weeks ago. And I had to, I had to look two, three times uh, while they were playing to figure out, am I watching a live, actual live a game yeah. or is this a digital simulation? It's getting harder to tell the difference. It really is, and, and I love that you picked that one because that's the one that I use too, the, the Madden series. I've, I've done the same thing. I've been doing a double take for a few years, and it's just getting better and better. And well, all that tells us is that you know it, it gives us evidence that we can be fooled, that we could live in a, a simulated world, and we would have no idea, you know, that it's under some sort of uh, program control. It's all very possible, and it's all very likely as the philosopher at Oxford University, Nick Bostrom, has posited that, that it, you know, if you follow the logic of living in a simulation, it's most likely that we already are. Um, and, and that's an interesting argument all by itself. But it's just one of maybe a dozen bits of evidence or a dozen categories of evidence that I've outlined on my site. Some of them I've, I've included in the book, and I'll certainly go through those at the conference. But taken all together, it's an incredible amount of support for this idea and you you know you pretty much can't argue with too many of these things and then and taking them all together it's very difficult to argue with the entire uh, uh basis of of um, you know these ideas and another uh, piece of evidence i'm not sure exactly how it fits in there but it does i'm quite sure uh recently i read where uh, researchers at MIT uh, were able to implant Essentially, implant false memories in lab mice. Absolutely, yeah. Now, this has been going on the brain-computer interface world. It has been. It, it's following Moore's law. So, if they can do lab mice now, then you know what's the compl- the ratio of complexity of a human brain to a mouse brain? I don't know. Just pick a number. You know, if it's a thousand, then you know a factor of two. Uh, you know, raised to. Ten, perhaps. I, you know, I forget my uh, my powers right now. But you know, that that just means Moore's law being every uh, 18 months or so. We just need 10 orders of that to get to the point where we can start doing that with humans. Exactly. Within Jim, our lifetimes. 
Absolutely, yeah. it's coming. Those kind of things can be done. Yeah, absolutely. If it's not here already, Jim, really looking forward to uh, to uh, speaking with you and uh, uh, letting people have an opportunity to hear uh, your most remarkable and compelling uh, presentation, November the sixteenth at the Regent Theater. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Richard. Have a good night. Thank you. Follow the Truth the Conspiracy Show Summit Sunday, November sixteenth, all day conference. For more information, visit followthetruth.tv, or you can order from the box office. 905-721-3399. Use the code word Roswell. Receive a 25% discount. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Americans have been conspiracy theorists since the beginning of America. But what do we really know about American conspiracy theories? Why do some burn brightly and endure while others flicker and fade? Are conspiracy theorists, just like everyone else, using a trove of original data? American Conspiracy Theories is the first work to systematically assess over a century of U.S. conspiracy theories. Joseph E. Uzinski and Joseph M. Parent find that much of what we know about conspiracies is wrong. Beneath the surface of successful conspiracy theories lurks a strategic logic. Shifts in political power have predictable effects on Americans' perceptions. Joseph Uzinski received his bachelor's degree from Plymouth State University, his master's from the University of New Hampshire, and his doctorate from the University of Arizona. His research has appeared in many scholarly journals and outlets. His first book, The People's News, Media, Politics, and the Demands of Capitalism, addresses how audiences demand drive news content. His most recent book, American Conspiracy Theories addresses why people do or don't believe in conspiracy theories in America. He's currently Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Miami. Joseph, welcome aboard. How are you? Very good. Uh, thank you so much for having me on tonight. Uh, and thank you for uh, for joining us, Joseph. I, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, that one of the things that sort of irks me is the way that this whole field of, of conspiracies is covered by um, the mainstream media, not just the mainstream media, but uh, there have been you know, academic report uh, papers and so forth, and I'm sure you've read many of them, that look at conspiracy theories from a strictly a sort of a psychological, sociological point of view, rather than examining them on a case-by-case basis. It's like they're trying to figure out what makes these people over here that believe in these things, what makes them tick? What's wrong with them? Do you, do you concur? Is that a fair assessment of the way conspiracy theories have been portrayed in the mainstream uh, media, uh, reporters, academics, and so forth? Yeah, I would concur with that. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at how conspiracy theories are covered in the mainstream media, uh, which is one of the things we look at in the book. We tracked news on the Internet over the course of a year. So we picked up about 3,000 stories in our sample that looked at, um, that were written in the mainstream media that, that looked at conspiracy theories. And what we found was the vast majority of them treated the conspiracy theory very negatively. It was only about 10 to 15% that treated the conspiracy theory positively. Um, I guess what you might expect um, would be that you would have more coverage coming down in the middle, but you don't. 
you, you have a mainstream media that's very anti-conspiracy theory. And we find the same thing in, in, in academia, too. Most studies come at the topic by assuming that conspiracy theories are wrong, that there's some part that they're a part of misinformation or a myth or a rumor, but they're under the assumption that they're that they're not true and they don't entertain the idea that they could be true. Is is this rooted in a a misunderstanding of the word conspiracy? Uh, for example, you know we know that in the judicial system there are thousands upon thousands of criminal conspiracy charges. Uh, laid every year in the United States and Canada. We know the corporations uh, uh, commit conspiracies. They collude. They conspire to fix prices or to uh, manipulate labor markets. Uh, why does the mainstream have such a problem with the, con- the word conspiracy? Is it that they don't understand what it really means? Well, I, th- I mean, on the one hand, it's not just the mainstream media. I think that people in general a lot of times have a very negative view of the word conspiracy theory. Um, So most people, if you say conspiracy theory, they immediately think kook or outside of the mainstream or that the person's unreasonable or can't be reasoned with or that the explanation is, you know, prima facie false. Um, Now, that's not absolute across all people. A lot of people, they hear conspiracy theory and they say, hey, you know, that might be something that I'm interested in. I want to see that, you know, that explanation. So that's why shows like yourself uh, do very well because you use the conspiracy theory term. And there are people who are attracted to that. Um, but most people are not attracted to that. They, they a priori think, hey, there's something wrong there if it's called a conspiracy theory. It can't be trusted and the people espousing it can't be trusted. And if you look at how, how debates take place amongst elites, so for instance in Congress a few weeks ago there were uh, hearings on the IRS scandal that's going on here in the U.S., and a congressman got up and he started asking the witness if he believed in Roswell and aliens and if he had ever been abducted by aliens. And the point he was trying to make was he was trying to invoke the idea of conspiracy to discredit the people who were doing the uh, interrogation and try to make them look like conspiracy theorists and paint them in a negative light. Yes, it's used as a as a as a bully uh, uh, or as a bludgeon to stifle healthy discourse, which is really unfortunate. That's right. So, and and we, and we see that time and time again, where we'll have people, um, you, you know, when you have people raise questions, um, they get immediately charred with. Um, you know, with this name. And it doesn't have to be, it, it shouldn't necessarily be a negative term. I mean, if you think about conspiracy theories, many of them turn out to be precisely true. So think about Woodward and Bernstein. I mean, those are your typical conspiracy theorists when exactly. they started investigating the Watergate break-in. Exactly. I, I often use that ex- that example, Joseph, and, and I suggest that if those... Uh, two were just sort of on their climbing the ladder now at the Washington Post and, and went to their went to their editor with that story. Uh, their colleagues would laugh them out of the room. That's exactly true, and it actually took them a long time to gather the evidence and really and really get the media behind them to push that story. I mean, if you look at how how Watergate was covered, it was covered a little bit, and then it went dead for a long time. 
and it took a lot of effort on the part of those reporters to really um, push the story. So, you know, had they not done that, and had they been pushed off to the side, I mean, Nixon would have gotten away with, you know, all the all the awful things he was doing. So it was good to have those uh, those investigators there. Joseph, you're an associate professor of political science at, at the University of Miami, pretty prestigious uh, university. Um, how how is conspiracy? Uh, how do you use that in your classroom? I mean, how do you how do you introduce the topic and and uh, um, what do you do with with that term in in the course of your teaching? Well, I've been teaching a course on the topic for two years now, and it is a very difficult course to get into. I'll, I'll have 35 students in the class, and then a wait list that's you know between 35 and 70. Very so telling students, indeed, isn't it? Yeah, so students eat it up. I don't tell students what conspiracy theories to believe in and what ones not to believe in. I tell them that's completely up to them. That uh, the, you know they need to sift through the evidence. Um, and make up their own mind on these things. I, you know, what I teach is is about political behavior. Why do people hold the opinions they have, and why do they act politically the way that they do? And we use conspiracy theories as kind of fodder for answering those uh, those questions. You, you had a ra- rather interesting experiment where uh, – how did this work now? You ask students on the one side of the class to make make up, fabricate a conspiracy mm-hmm. theory – uh, and then the other half of the class had to t- try and debunk that theory. Tell me about that experiment. Yeah, so I ask everybody to, to write up their own conspiracy theory, to completely make it up to, you know, however fantastic they want it to be. And then they trade it with another student, and that student has to debunk it and has to say why it's probably not true. And then they have to, in front of the class, say, you know, here are the reasons why the conspiracy theory isn't true. And the funny thing is, it always happens, is that the student who wrote the conspiracy theory gets upset at the person who's debunking it because he now believes that it's true. And I say, how can it be true? You made it up, and you know you made it up. Interesting. <laughs> so that's the funny, that's the very funny thing in the class. But um, the point isn't to manipulate people's beliefs, but it's to, to better understand why uh you know, beliefs are very important to people and why sometimes it's very difficult to negotiate, um, you know, these sorts of beliefs and opinions. And now, now is, uh, from a psychological point of view, why does that happen, do you suppose? Why do people, is it because they've invested so much of themselves in that fabricated tale uh, that to see it deconstructed, uh, they take a personal affront to that? I think in this instance they do. I mean, in, in you know, with this academic learning exercise. But I think in the broader populace, um, conspiracy theories are very difficult to talk about. You know, people who believe in them don't always want to share uh, their beliefs uh, for fear that others are going to attack them. Uh, When people do talk about conspiracy theories, oftentimes the debates can get very heated and and, and people can't always, uh, you know, can't get along or agree very well. And that's unfortunate because I think people should be able to um, to discuss conspiracy theories just like they discuss other stuff. Um, just the, you know, I, I guess in that sense, conspiracy theories aren't that much different from other types of beliefs. So imagine, you know, if you were, you and I had different religions and we're going to, you know, try to figure out which one's correct, we're probably not going to come out, you know, um, negotiating very well or, or getting along. 
or if you're a member of one party and I'm a member of the other, you know, we're not going to agree. You know, so conspiracy theories aren't unlike other beliefs in that sense. It's, you know, when it's something that you care about, when it has to do with, you know, understanding how the world works, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to compromise on those beliefs very much. So that's where the conversation can sometimes um, get a little bit rancorous. I've always uh, said that uh, uh, to believe that everything, or put, let me reverse that, to believe that nothing is a conspiracy is about as ridiculous and about as useful an idea as maintaining that everything is a conspiracy. Would you concur? Oh, absolutely. That's 100% true. So you can think of someone who believes in no conspiracy theories as probably naive, and you can think of somebody who believes in every conspiracy theory as gullible. You know, there's probably a happy medium somewhere in the middle where, I mean, we know some have to be true. I mean, every conspiracy theory has a better than 0% chance of being true. And and I would just say this, there are conspiracies that are probably going on right now, some we might know a little bit about, some we know nothing about. So there are always going to be powerful groups somewhere doing something that isn't very good. So somebody right now is probably conspiring. Who it is and what they're up to, I don't know. But there are so many examples from history that show, you know, uh, examples of, of, of actual conspiracies happening that we know it has to be true, that, that somebody somewhere is doing something. Now, does that mean every conspiracy theory that we hear is true? No, probably not. Um, so if you believe everyone, you, you know, your standards for evidence might be a little bit low. If you believe none, then you're probably naive. We're going to take a break here in a moment, but I just want to at least start the conversation about um, why the United States seems to be such a hotbed uh, for conspiracy theory. And uh, I, I mean, I attribute it. Uh, I'll get your take on it, but I attribute it to just the the how the nation was forged. Uh, here in Canada, for example, uh, uh, I'll give you an example. The, the difference between Canadians and Americans, there's a, a comedian slash lawyer up here called Hart Pomerantz, and he had a terrific line uh, explaining the difference between Canadians and Americans. He says that Americans, uh, the United States, they shot their parents. We still send money home, obviously talking about you know the, the, the queen and, or the king, as the case may be. But uh, it, does that have something to do with the... the not the fascination so much of conspiracy in the United States, but um, why it has taken such a hold uh, in the culture there. Because of this, I think, this natural uh, mistrust of authority, whereas here in Canada, you know, we believe in, in, uh, in good government. Uh, that's, you know, right in our constitution, peace, order, and good government, which, you know, there's a, there's a, a trust. Some might say an, un, an unhealthy trust of authority here. Well, conspiracy theories don't have to necessarily be aimed at government, um, but it may very well be true that some that, that, that some countries have more um, fear of powerful groups, government, corporations, and whatnot than uh, than others. You know, I studied the American case, and I haven't been able yet to do uh, comparative research looking at different countries to find out who's more conspiratorial and who isn't. Um, but if you go all the way back to American history, there seems to be exactly what you say—a, you know, a, a fear of of power, 
and it's written right into the Declaration of Independence, as we start out in our book. I mean, when the United States united, um, you know, we wrote this beautiful Declaration of Independence. The first few paragraphs are just incredible. And then what comes after that is this piling on of conspiratorial charges against the king, most of which really weren't very true. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of truth to them, but the king was not trying to set up a tyranny over the colonies and rule over them with an iron fist. All right. Well, uh, but I, I guess many of those allusions to conspiracy, the very word conspiracy, uh, was sort of stricken from from the uh, from the document. Is that is that not correct? Well, some of it still remains. I, I mean, it, it doesn't say conspiracy, but it does say that the king wants to rule over the colonies and and, and uh, be a tyrant. But the original version written by Jefferson was much longer, and it had a lot more charges against the king, which uh, uh, the, the, the colonists had to edit out uh, for clarity. All right, Joseph, uh, stay put. We'll uh, reconnoiter on the other side. This is The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay a while. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are talking about conspiracy theories uh, tonight. Joseph Yuzinski is uh, with us. He is an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, and his most recent book is American Conspiracy uh, Theories. And we were discussing the, the role of, uh, or, or why conspiracy theories uh, have taken hold in, in American culture, maybe the genesis uh, of that. Um, now, the, the term conspiracy theory... Uh, I've read, and, and you can disabuse me if this is, is, is not correct, uh, but according to legend, uh, conspiracy theory was actually a term that was developed by one of the, uh, the alphabet uh, intelligence agencies in the United States after the Kennedy assassination, uh, and uh, it was supposed to be used, again, as sort of as a bludgeon to, to, uh, to stifle debate when, everyone was, when anyone was raising questions about the Kennedy assassination and maybe the veracity of the Warren report. Is that true? I don't know if that's true, but I have heard that before. Um, so if you go back in time and you, and you look at news reports, certainly you see that term coming out um, in the 60s, but I've seen it prior to that too. I mean, I can't imagine a better term for it. And I guess, and I guess if we're worried about the term conspiracy theory, it's not so much the words that matter, it's, it's the meaning that people attach to it. So if people, you know, think that conspiracy theorists are kooks and weirdos and paranoids, then it doesn't matter what word you use. It matters that people have that perception of them. So we could call, you know, people something else, but it, it's, it's, you know, if the meaning's still there, it doesn't matter. I mean, your show is called The Conspiracy Show. And your show seems to do very well. Right. So it's not that the it's not that the name is driving people away. It's attracting people. It's just some people like the you know those terms, and some people are, you know, see them as terms of derision. Now you mentioned we we mentioned the Kennedy assassination, and we talked about Watergate, uh, and certainly since since nine eleven, uh, uh, you know, there's been a, a heightened uh, sense of uh, that that you know conspiracy theory has sort of gained new traction and uh, uh, I'm wondering though have there been other periods in history uh, I mean on a relative scale are we more sort of consumed by conspiracies now or were there other part are there other times in America's past uh, where conspiracy theory was was rampant 
Well, we started our study in the in the 1890s, and we went to 2010. And one thing that we wanted to test was how conspiratorial is the country in relative terms over time, because everybody always thinks that right now is the most conspiratorial we've ever been. So if you read the papers now, they say, oh, my God, we're becoming a conspiracy country. And if you read the papers five years ago, they said, oh, my God, we're becoming a conspiracy country. 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, all the newspapers said, oh, my God, we've become more conspiratorial than ever. And if they were all right, then, you know, we'd be off the charts. Conspiracy theorizing, that'd be all we talk about. But it isn't. You know, there are two periods in history where conspiracy theorizing became, you know, really high elevated levels. Um, but as it stands right now, you know, it's actually come down on average um, over the last hundred years. I mean, those two peak periods are in the 1890s and then in the 1950s. The 1950s was the, um, uh, the second Red Scare. Sure. A red under every bed. Yes. And... And, and the reason for that is that the communists at that time, um, neither party really liked communism. The the uh, the Soviets were gaining new power. China had just fallen. We were entering a new stage of, of uh, bipolar international relations, and um, we were now nuclear, and the Soviets were nuclear. So we were in this new place in the late 40s and early 50s and it was scary so you have everybody able to attach um, their fears to one group and that was the communists now does that mean that those fears were were not uh, founded on something No. I mean there you know there were communist groups in the country and there most certainly were Russian spies here and people were rightly afraid I mean Russia was a new superpower and, and they were a serious competitor and we should have been worried about them um, the other period in time was the 1890s, and the the group that was gaining the most power then was business. You have huge gains made in manufacturing and technological development during that time, and and money and wealth uh, wound up being concentrated in a very small number of hands. And at that time, business hadn't really become part of the Republican Party. So neither party was like, oh, you know, we're the party of, of big business. Um, so both parties were able to get upset with the big corporations and the, uh, you know, the oil magnets and the radio and, and, and the railroad um, people and the, um, the the steel mill owners and so all those rich people. I mean, they could be targeted by both parties. But then after 1896. Um, that no longer happens because McKinley, who became president in 1896, he was a Republican. He brought business into the Republican fold where it stayed um, since that time. So Republicans are much less likely now to be concerned about business um, conspiring against them than, than uh, Democrats are. Is there... One particular uh, is there one political stripe over the other uh, that that tends to to uh, believe in conspiracies more than the other? Democrats and Republicans are about equal, and that shocks both sides because Republicans think the Democrats are a bunch of conspiracy people, and and, and Democrats think the Republicans are a bunch of conspiracy people, and um, the truth is neither of them are. 
I mean, conspiracy theorizing is pretty equal between the two parties. Um, it's part of the human condition. There's nothing wrong with it. And, you know, we were talking about is it a word of division? It's used as a word of division, but it's, you know, it's a trait that some people have more than others. Everybody has it at least a little bit. Um, and it's it's not it's not uh, solely within one party or the other. If there are groups that do it a little bit more than others, it's the third parties and the social movements who tend to use them a lot more. Interesting. Um, we'll, we'll take a time out. When we come back, I wanted to talk to you about whether or not the belief in conspiracy theories uh, can be toxic, and 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 whether there is a danger that it can that it can undermine. Our, inst- our institutions uh, and and d- democracy itself. We'll we'll get into that with uh, Joseph Uzinski, who is an associate professor of political science at the University of Miami, and his recent book, his most recent book, American Conspiracy Theories, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Joseph Uzinski is with us, Associate Professor of Political Science, University of Miami, and the author of American Conspiracy Theories, uh, co-author. Now, there was a, uh, there is a member of the, uh, of President Barack Obama's administration, I believe, who was, who either was, was given the assignment or took it upon him or herself to use social media as, as a method of, I guess, in their mind, talking people down off the ledge in terms of conspiracy theories and, and using social media to persuade people to, to stop thinking about conspiracy theories. Tell me more about that. Yeah, well, there was a, a, he, he's a uh, Harvard Law professor, and he studies why people believe the things that they do and, and how people uh, come up with certain beliefs given their social network. And his concern was that uh, conspiracies were were bad for democracy, and that they, um, if they led people to believe wrong information, it would lead them to act poorly in terms of democratic decision making, or um, it, it might lead them to act badly in other ways. So he considered them, you know, somewhat dangerous ideas. And his hope was to figure out a way to dissuade people of their conspiratorial beliefs. And one one idea that he put forward was to have people go into chat rooms and share authoritative evidence into those conspiracy theory chat rooms that would uh, challenge the people who believed in conspiracy theories. Now, this isn't an idea that I would agree with, because I, I think what's happening there is that you're asking the government to essentially conspire Exactly. People to change what they believe. And I don't think government should be in the business of changing people's beliefs. And and I think schemes like that could lead to Orwellian abuses of power. Now, I don't think that the person who came up with that idea is, you know, out to injure people or, you know, wanted to hurt anyone. I don't think that was his intent. But I think, you know, he, like me, is grappling with this idea of conspiracy theory, and is it good or is it bad, and and in what ways, and is is there something that should be done about it, and if and if so, what? I mean, my personal feeling is, and what I found from my research, is that there there isn't much you can do. I can't. If you believe that Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy, I'm not going to dissuade you from that belief any more than I could dissuade you from being a Catholic or being a Democrat 
or liking your favorite dish. You know, I'm just not going to convince you of things that you don't want to believe. So we really shouldn't try to do that. I think a better course for us to steer is just um, just to encourage people to try to get along and to share their ideas better and to judge ideas more fairly. So if you see a conspiracy theory um, and you're wondering whether you should believe in it, you should judge it with the same criteria you would judge any other theory. And you should try to have standards that are constant for believing in in different things. I, I um, have a, a theory. Uh, maybe it's a bit of my own uh, my own bias here, but um, I think what's driving a lot of of this, and and I think there's a lot of good that come out of uh, you know a belief in conspiracies. It, 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 there's some critical thinking that's involved. Uh, it's easy to dismiss conspiracy theorists as kooks and say, oh, you're just you're trying to make a very complex world sim- you know simple. It's it's random. You know, people die in car accidents all the time, and if you believe in conspiracies, it's because you, you know, you're 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 uh, you're being overwhelmed, and you're trying to simplify the world. But I, you know, I I think it's the exact opposite is true. I mean, to believe in 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 that there are these nefarious forces out there is not an easy road to hoe. I mean, it's you can become you can become quite cynical and almost despair. What do you, what do you, what do you think? Well, on the first, on your first point, I mean, conspiracy theories. A lot of people say, "Oh, well, they're just a way for people to make sense of a complex world," and they're a way to come up with a simple explanation for something that's very complicated. And in my research, I don't find that. It, I mean, sometimes the conspiracy theories are far more complicated than the, you know, than the accepted stories. So it's not that people are looking for something simple that they can wrap their mind around. It's that they're looking for something that that that. Uh, um, that tries to explain something in a way that makes sense to them. Right, right. So, so that explanation for conspiracy theory should be should be jettisoned. I agree. But but the other thing is, uh, as you point out, it, 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 the, they tend to be very involved and complicated. Then, of course, the debunker or the skeptic throws Occam's razor in your face and says, "No, no, no, no. The simplest explanation is the most." They want it both ways, don't they? The simplest explanation is the most likely. Uh, but I look at something for like nine uh, eleven as an example. To me, the simplest explanation is whoever is responsible for this had to have some assistance on the inside to pull something this complex off. That to me is Oakham's razor. I mean, that may you know that may be the case. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't think we'll you know if somebody was on on the inside, it's going to be very difficult to ferret that person out. And to find out why they were doing that and what their, you know, what their motives were and how they pulled it off. Um, you know, in terms of democracy, I mean, are, if the question is, are conspiracy theories good or bad? The answer is mixed. I mean, they do do some good. If, you know, the good thing about conspiracy theories is that they challenge powerful groups. You know, sometimes they sound, you know, very accusatory and and mean, and sometimes they even, you know, sometimes they're linked to violence. But but one thing they do that's really good is that they is that they hold powerful people's feet to the fire, in that in that even if the person who's getting accused of a conspiracy theory isn't actually behind anything, it still sends the signal that hey, there's people watching you. I agree, yes. But, hey, there's a concerned citizenry who cares, and we have values, and we're going to make sure that those are upheld. Isn't that so supposed to be the role of the, of 
sorry, Joseph, isn't that supposed to be the, the role of the fourth estate, uh, the, the journalists, the investigative reporters? And because many of us feel that they've abdicated that responsibility, then it's been left to sort of these independent investigators that uh, sort of live online. Sure, and I could give you some great examples of that. I mean, if you go back to, to after the Warren report came out, after the JFK assassination, I mean, those are the days before we had searchable databases and searchable text and, you know, we could download whatever we want. I mean, there were just volumes and volumes of, of text, and people couldn't really get through it. And it was it was a group of housewives across the country who started going through those those volumes of the Warren Report and indexing them and investigating parts of it that they didn't agree with, and they started sharing their ideas. And it's because of that that the Warren Report actually became indexed and searchable, and it's because of that that a lot of the, the investigations that followed into the Kennedy assassination um, came about. It's because of those efforts of, of just regular people. How do you feel, getting back to 9-11 again, and, and, and those uh, people that, that believe uh, that there was an inside component to it? Um, and, of course, you know, Clinton administration, the Bush administration uh, certainly have great difficulty with, with these types of questions when they've arisen. Uh, Clinton, I remember in one very memorable moment, shouted down someone who asked him a question about 9-11 and whether there was an inside component, and Clinton said, you know, with these glaring eyes, how dare you? Um, do you think that questioning the government questioning the government, and, and, and speculating that there may have been some inside assistance during 9-11, is that dangerous? Is that, is that toxic? Um, I don't know if it's toxic. I mean, people have free speech, and if they want to question authoritative stories, then they should certainly do that. I mean, I think I think people had a lot of questions about what happened in 9-11, and that's what spurred the 9-11 Commission. And I think there are people who are still unsatisfied with, with the answers that came from there. I mean, if you look at polls in the U.S., you, you know, we usually come in about 20 to 30 percent of people um, – believe in some form of truth or theory, um, that, that believe that the official account isn't necessarily wholly true. So it's not it's not that it's just a, a small handful of people who believe in it. There are, you know, there are quite a few who, who still have a lot of questions about it. There's been some speculation that, that uh, the, the tolerance on the part of certain authorities in the United States and elsewhere. It's sort of reaching its breaking point when it comes to these types of discussion on the public airwaves uh, and that they may find some excuse to sort of clamp down on this type of talk. What, what do you hear? What do you, what's your sense of that? I haven't heard that, and I think it would be really bad to try to censor any idea. Um, I'm a big proponent of free speech, and I want the government to stay out of deciding what's true and what's false. I know that there there are small, you know, there are always movements to, to you know, say, hey, you know, we want the, the public to get the best information possible and we only want them to get the truth. The problem is somebody's got to decide what that is. And who do you want to decide what truth is for you? I mean, the only person I want to do that for me is me. Exactly. And I think the best way for me to do that is to have as many options out there for me to choose from. And I can decide what the best thing is. I don't want the government to decide that. I don't want the government to take people off the air. I don't want the government to, 
tell radio shows and TV shows what they can, you know, what ideas they can and can't discuss. I mean, that would be a conspiracy. I mean, that would be, you know, totalitarianism at its finest. I don't want that. Oh, amen to that. Well, I applaud what you're doing, uh, Joseph, and uh, I think it's it's healthy and it's uh, important for us to talk about these things rather than a, a sort of a stifle healthy debate and discourse by throwing a, a words around, uh, uh, oh, you're just a, a nutter or a conspiracy theorist. Uh, Joseph, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Joseph Yusinski, American Conspiracy Theories. My website is richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. Don't forget to visit followthetruth.tv.